says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And Father, we just humbly ask as your church, as a part of the body of Christ assembled here this morning, that you just help us now in this time of worship as we continue now in our worship by opening the word of God and just submitting our hearts and soul and mind and spirit to you that you might speak to us in this hour what we need to hear to instruct us to guide us Lord to teach us what we need to know to faithfully serve you and live for you we ask that you'd prepare us Lord we ask that you'd take away from us and anything that would seek Lord to take away from us spiritually the good seed of your word coming into our heart and being able to produce good fruit in our lives so help us Lord we pray that your same spirit who inspired the word of God would now be our teacher and our interpreter and the one who would speak personally to us Bless your word, we ask together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, when you think about the life of the church, what typically do you envision in regards to what church should be, what church shouldn't be? When you certainly go into Christian bookstores nowadays, there is a plethora, it seems, of books that are written in regards to church and church life and how to build the church, what makes a church successful, all those kind of things. But you know, here, thankfully, God has given to us in his word, and we don't have to pay any price at the bookstore for it, really a nice, quick little snapshot, sort of a, a brief picture, if you would, a summarization really of the lifestyle of the early church. Uh, and I think in all honesty, we see a model and ideal here really for probably most likely what Jesus intended the church to be what the life of the church was to look like. I'm not by any means saying that the early church didn't have its problems and its challenges as we go through the book of Acts, as it covers the first 30 years of church history. We can see already they were having challenges. They, just like you and I, were a group of sinners who were learning how to live life together and worship Jesus together, and they had their challenges and their difficulties, things they had to figure out and work through doctrinally and relationally and all those kind of things. But certainly we see the church in its early stages here and I think we see a beautiful model and a pattern of a healthy church and I think the Holy Spirit purposely has recorded these things for us to kind of recognize and aspire to if we remember the background what we looked at together last time in Acts chapter 2 we have now come to what we would consider really the birth or the origin of what we call the New Testament church we're right after the time period where Jesus has ascended back into heaven, sitting again at the right hand of the throne of God. The Holy Spirit has descended. The Spirit of God was poured out at Pentecost. And remember, Peter then began to preach this amazing gospel message. And as Peter preached Christ, 
It tells us that on that day, we saw last time together, verse 41, that those who gladly received his word were then baptized, their public acknowledgement of their salvation. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. So that was a pretty effective sermon that Peter preached that day. And certainly that spirit-filled preaching and that biblical preaching, God honored and blessed it in this beautiful way where literally on that day, the, the believers, the disciples went from about 120 to 3,120. Now that's a lot of brand new converts. That's a lot of baby Christians, a lot of people who've now just come to faith in Christ. So the question is, what do you do with all these brand new Christians? What do you do now? You have all these people who just recently got saved. Uh, really, what did the church spend its time doing then? What was the environment and the atmosphere among these early believers? What did their lifestyle look like? And, and what manner did spiritual growth come about? Well, really, we see here, I think, in Acts chapter 2, purposely an insertion of a few snapshots, if you would, that the Holy Spirit gives to us of what the church life looked like. What were the marks, you might say, of a healthy church? And as we go through this together, particularly, and I'm, I'm purposely, I want to tell you in advance, kind of camping a little bit more here on verse 42 rather than some of our verses, because I think particularly in verse 42, you sort of see the activities of the early church or you might say the activities of a healthy church the marks of a healthy church it says there in verse 42 that after these souls were all now added to christ verse 42 it says and they the believers continued steadfastly in the apostles doctrine and in fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayer so here we see you might say four you could say simple or basic things from verse 42 that were activities that the early church the early believers gave themselves to and i stress the word gave themselves to in fact you might want to underline if you're an underliner in your bible there those two words in verse 42 it says they continued steadfastly they continued steadfastly. Uh, your translation might render that devoted. The Greek there speaks of how these were things they were constantly diligent in or things that they attended to consistently. This was their ongoing or continual adherence. That's the idea. These were things that they weren't sort of just passive about. These were things they were actually devoted to. They continued in regularly doing the things with a steadfast adherence. These were the things that were the emphasis of the life priority of the early church. These were ongoing habits that existed among the believers. And again, as we've said before, the early church, when you look at it, it wasn't a super wealthy group of people. They weren't overly structured or overly organized. They weren't working a spiritual business model. Uh, with strategies and goals and kind of four and five and seven and ten year plans. There was nothing of this. But what you do find is a group of people who were passionate about the Lord Jesus and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and living under the influence of the Spirit. And now we see here four things particularly mentioned by God that marked their lifestyle. 
things that they maintained as a lifestyle of a group of Christians who knew and loved each other for activities, we want to take note of here in verse 42, that were marks of a healthy church. The first one, if you draw your attention to the verse, you see the first mark, you could say, of a healthy church. It says they continued steadfastly in number one, the apostles' doctrine, or the idea is the apostles' teaching. That is, they were passionate about and committed to, as a church, learning the word of God. These believers had a strong desire and were devoted to increasing in the knowledge of who God was and what God's ways were. And they understood that the way to learn that is by learning from the word of God, from doctrine, that which the apostles, the spiritual leaders would teach to them as they were studying the scriptures. They were serious and committed about, you might say, studying the Bible. And keep in mind, in that day and in this time period, all they had was the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, They weren't studying with the privilege you and I have, the book of Acts. The book of Acts was being lived out. (laughs) They weren't studying the New Testament epistles. Romans is interesting and Galatians is insightful. And they didn't even have those things at the earliest stages. They were studying passages like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and, you know, the book of Genesis. And these were the things that they were looking at and learning from and seeing Christ in the midst of. But their heart was that they wanted to learn doctrine. They wanted to understand the nature of God, the ways of God. The central emphasis to the church activity we can see was there was a consistent amount of teaching the word of God to God's people. They were diligent in wanting those who were gifted and anointed by the spirit to teach the word of God, to instruct them in the things of God. They had a heart for this. The people did. They wanted to walk with God and they knew the Bible was the best way through spiritual learning to do that. And I want to tell you something. As I see that priority and that is an emphasis of the lifestyle of the early church that they were consistently giving themselves with devotion to the study and the learning of the word of God, that makes me honestly very thankful to be a part of a fellowship like this. To be a part of a family of churches, and certainly as Calvary Chapel, uh, you know, style churches, we don't in any way think that we have something more special about us than any other church or any other group that gathers together in the name of Jesus. But I tell you, one of the things that I found when I was on the other side of this pulpit many, many years ago that I truly loved about being a part of the style of ministry that we are was I loved the emphasis upon the teaching of the Word of God. And that that was central and foundational, the practice of systematic Bible teaching through the entirety of the word of God and teaching through it. And listen, there is a difference when I say teaching the word of God and systematic Bible teaching. There is a difference between teaching from the Bible or teaching about the Bible and actually teaching the Bible. There are a lot of you know, people who teach from the Bible. That is, they teach a message and maybe they put together an outline on a topic and then they go through the word of God and they draw a text from here and a scripture from there. And that supports, you know, supports point one in their idea. And then they use an applicable scripture to support point two and so on. And that's teaching from the Bible. That's using the Bible as a way to support, which may be even theologically accurate ideas and maybe some interesting insights 
and, and there's that I think there's a topical benefit at times to covering something but teaching from the Bible or just teaching about the Bible is vastly different than actually teaching the Bible and actually just taking the word of God and verse by verse and chapter by chapter and book by book in context going from the front to the back and taking the scripture and studying it and interpreting it in context and expounding what the word of God says rather than going to the word of God with an idea and trying to put your idea into the word of God. Listen, this is the difference between what's called eisegesis and exegesis. Eisegesis is going to the Bible with ideas you already have and trying to find a way to work your ideas into what the Bible says and produce and communicate those things. Exegesis is taking what the word of God already says, what the Holy Spirit inspired and recorded and just unpacking what God already put into that and just taking what God's word says. We don't have any preconceived ideas. We just want to unpack faithfully, contextually with good interpretation and then sound application what did God put into the word of God and we just want to take that and unpack it as we work our way through it and allowing the word of God to just be that which we allow ourselves to be taught from and that spiritual practice and activity that is essential essential to making healthy sheep to making healthy Christians to have a group of Christians that don't just become like a spiritual nursery but instead become a group of people who become disciples who are growing and maturing and learning. And that's impossible with that consistent, faithful Bible exposition. The Bible says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. This is the whole reason why 2 Timothy 3, where Paul says there in the inspiration of the Spirit, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable. Profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, this is what we need. We need the word of God. Many people today, you guys understand in some ways are a very unique bunch. I'm proud to be a part of a group like this because there are a lot of people today who, nah, nah, Bible doctrine, that stuff's so boring. I mean, it's too intense. I mean, just can you just lighten it up a little bit? And I mean, the, the desire of many people today to honestly want to learn the word of God and learn doctrine about who God is and what God's ways are and what it genuinely means to be a follower of Christ is in many ways something that's becoming a, a fading level of interest among many of God's people. Where Peter says to us in his writing, crave the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Again, it is through the study and the learning of the word of God that we grow. So one mark we see of the early church and a healthy church is it is a church that's committed to learning the word of God. They continued, it says, steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. A second mark, a second thing they were devoted to, it says they also continued steadfastly in, this says, fellowship. Now, a lot of times we hear the word fellowship. And again, you know, in Christianity, we have all these cliche words that we use and we kind of know what they mean but if you talk to a non-Christian they have no clue what you're talking about but fellowship is kind of one of those words we hear the word fellowship and we automatically think oh social interaction let's get together for some fellowship so we think hey okay fellowship is that's the coffee and the donuts we eat after church that's fellowship hey there's some great fellowship there no what you mean is there's some great donuts there 
That, that, that's genuinely, from God's perspective, really not what that term there, fellowship, means. It's actually a Greek term, fellowship, koinonia. It could be translated a common bond or literally probably it implies a, a close partnership, a sharing. It speaks of camaraderie. It speaks of learning how to dwell and function and live together in a close partnership. It implies caring for one another like a family does. Like a family, that you live life together, that you do life together. You're involved in one another's lives. You're not just engaging in social functions. And yeah, we're going to go to that social function. The church is happening. We're going to have some fun. We're going to laugh. It, it's more than that. It's much deeper than that. I'm not saying that doesn't have a, a benefit and have its place. But the idea here is not describing all the social activities that the church was hosting. It's describing the spiritual experience of family bonding and spiritual connection as brothers and sisters in Christ. That in the same way a natural family has bonds and connection and they support one another and they stand with each other and they live life together and they anger one another and then they apologize to one another and then they you know, learn things together and grow together. Look, is it, is it not true that you know, the best way to develop character is just to be a part of a family? Right? You're part of a family. You're going to grow character. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful way, you know, honestly, for character to be... Well, look, nothing changes spiritually. It's by being a part of the family of God that characters develop. I mean, so often, what, what is neglected to be realized is we experience this, okay, as a part of a worship service, and we're teaching the Word of God, we're explaining spiritual principles, and, and we're, okay, yeah, that's... Okay, God's Word says this, and... God's word says that and it's sort of like when you have a college class or a biology class right you have the lecture and then you have the lab right well Christians love the lecture yo amen yeah that's good I'm underlining that let me highlight that in your Bible in fact and we love the lecture but where's the lab work happen like this the lab work happens when you have a conversation and somebody inadvertently says something that offends you and hurts your feelings and they have no idea that they actually, like a knucklehead, just hurt your feelings and offended you and now there's an opportunity. Are you going to discuss things? Are you going to communicate? Are you going to apologize? Are you going to say, hey, I forgive you. Let's pray together. Let's move on. Keep loving each other. Or are you going to be immature and spiteful and get bitter and nasty? And no, that's how, you, how do you practice forgiveness? How do you practice love and practice humility and practice that this is the lab work? It's through koinonia. It's through fellowship. It's through doing life together and sharing life together. That's God's design. I love this. There, it seems there was no independent spirit among the believers in that day. Nobody felt they didn't need the rest of the family of God. Oh, I, yeah, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus, but I just hate the church. There was none of that. They realize we need each other. We're dependent upon each other for survival and support as a body. And they function like a family. They learn how to live life together. Just, you know, being aware of what's going on in each other's lives. They knew how each other were doing and they actually cared enough to get involved if necessary. And whether it was painting houses together or eating meals together or helping each other move to different locations or learning how to just support and care for them, each one knew how the other was doing. And I'll tell you, that is how spiritual maturity begins to develop. And that's the kind of fellowship we need to have, that true word fellowship among the body of Christ. Spiritual care, interaction with one another, living life together, not necessarily social activity, 
but sharing our lives. Again, Romans 12 says that we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's the idea there. Doing life together. Bearing each other's burdens, celebrating in each other's victories. 1 Corinthians 12 says, When one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, then all the members rejoice with it. This is the implication. Every believer needs, listen, to be actively tied into the body of Christ. It's essential for us. In the same way natural body parts need to be connected to the overall body so that they can receive from the rest of the body what they need for their function and survival and the same way so that they can contribute to the rest of the body what their purpose and function is. The same is true. The Bible uses the spiritual analogy for individual Christians joined together as the body of Christ. Maybe an ear, maybe an eye, maybe a foot, maybe a nose, maybe a mouth, that we all have our part and our place in the body. 1 Corinthians 12 says we're individually members of one another. And in the same way, we need to be connected to some part of the body of Christ as Christians. This is essential to what God's plan is for us, that we're plugged in, receiving what we need from the church family participating, sharing, and giving our part to the church family. I love Ephesians 4 in regards to this. Speaking of believers, it says this, the whole body is joined and knit together, listen, by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Listen, it is essential. You need the body of Christ. You need to be connected to the church family and the church family needs you. And so when you pull away from the church family, you're going to struggle because if you disconnect a body part from the rest of the body, it's not going to make it. And in the same way, when you disconnect from the body of Christ, you in a sense withhold what you contribute to the body of Christ from everybody else in the church family. And the body, in a sense, is handicapped because you've pulled away from the church family, whatever that church family may be in the expression of your life. So a third mark we see here, verse 42, not only were they continuing steadfastly in teaching of the word of God, in fellowship, spiritual care, and spiritual family life, but it also says they continued steadfastly as well in the breaking of bread. Now, in that ancient culture, Certainly, that likely included the hospitality that they were way more involved in than we are nowadays in our American culture of sharing meals together. That was the way they connected and had intimacy. But typically, a meal would then be shared, which would ultimately then usually culminate in partaking of the Lord's Supper or communion, which may very likely probably be the emphasis of what's being referred to here. And a communion, remember, is that New Testament ordinance one of two that Jesus left for the church. Water baptism for the individual believer to express their commitment to Christ and communion regularly on an ongoing basis is something that we're to share collectively as the body of Christ as a church family. As we remember Jesus through the broken bread and the cup, we remember his broken body and his shed blood and Jesus said, as often as you do this, he says, do it in remembrance of of me again Jesus wanted us as believers to consistently partake of sharing the Lord's Supper together there was a heart behind that and and really regularly partaking of communion does a few things it keeps the essential themes of our relationship with Jesus fresh on our minds 
Because when we partake of communion, what are we doing? We're thinking about Jesus. We're remembering his love. We're reflecting on his sacrifice and his suffering for us. And it's a time for us to perhaps confess sin or repent and receive his forgiveness. It's a time where we remember we're unified, we're one because we're in Christ. And so Jesus wanted us to regularly partake of communion. It seems they consistently did that as a group of early believers. And probably that gathering that they often did to share the Lord's Supper is likely why they were perhaps so passionate about Jesus is because they were regularly keeping the main thing, the main thing. And look, I want to say this as an encouragement. I want to encourage you as a Christian, be careful of neglecting the value of participating in the Lord's Supper. And that when there's an opportunity to partake of communion, oftentimes we'll do it on a Wednesday evening, more frequently than we do on a, on a Sunday morning. We try and vary it a little bit. But I want to encourage you, when you hear, hey, we're going to partake of communion, we're going to share the Lord's Supper, I would encourage you, don't, don't just overlook that as unessential. This is something that Jesus wanted us to do. It's an activity that helps realign our hearts spiritually. And, and communion, to me, what it does is it shifts our focus back on what really matters. Jesus because when we assemble and we worship the Lord and we have a communion service and we take our time and are worshipful it just allows us to put our focus back on what matters and oftentimes as we're remembering that by his stripes that we're healed it's in that worshipful moment that so often burdens are lifted off of us and bitterness is taken away from us I honestly truly believe personally just a conviction here I think a lot of times the Lord's people carry around unnecessary burdens and unnecessary bitterness and brokenness due to the effects of sin because sometimes they don't partake of breaking bread with the Lord's people because it's in that time and in that gathering that so often as we're focusing on the Lord and we're worshiping and his presence is so rich among us and we're remembering by his stripes that we're healed that oftentimes Jesus does such wonderful things on those occasions So I encourage you, look, whether it's together collectively at a church service or whether it's just with a few believers or maybe your own family to not neglect partaking of communion and remembering Jesus in that way. And the fourth mark we see as well of these early believers there in verse 42 is that they also continued steadfastly in prayers. And the implication there is clear. It's not a reference to individual praying as a Christian, but corporate prayer. That is spending time together with other believers seeking God. Coming together to communicate with God collectively, pursuing his presence, requesting together for God's power and intervention and his provision to be poured out. It is very evident and hard to miss when you read the book of Acts to not see that these early Christians were devoted to prayer. I mean, it's almost impossible to read the book of Acts and not see that as a mark of the early church. It's revealed repeatedly. Acts chapter 1, we saw it says the church was gathered together and continued in one accord in prayer as they waited for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. In Acts chapter 4, there's that beautiful scene where it says that when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and went out and began to speak the word of God with boldness. These early Christians, I believe, that generation of the church was so powerful because they spent time in prayer together. Because this was a clear mark of their 
personal discipline as a church, that they held prayer meetings, they willingly assembled, they found it important to gather together and spend time seeking God, and the Lord was honoring that. I love the passage in Acts chapter 12 when we get there because there the church is harassed, it says, by Herod, James is killed, Peter is locked up in prison, and I love what it says that the church is going through these difficulties. It says, but constant prayer was offered to God for Peter by the church. And then when the Lord opened the doors and set Peter loose, it says he went back to the house and it says there in the text where many were gathered together praying. I love that. A believer's having trouble. He's imprisoned. He's stuck in a situation. And what does it say? It doesn't say the elders and pastors assembled and prayed and interceded. It says the church assembled and started praying and pleading with God saying, God, open the doors, set him free, do something. Lord, we need you to move here. And many came together as they were praying. God did something absolutely marvelous. I mean, we would be being dishonest with ourselves if we were not to admit that sadly corporate prayer is much neglected in the modern church today. I mean, if we were to be honest with ourselves, many different church activities fill up calendars and draw people's attendance, but typically prayer meetings, do they not tend to kind of draw the faithful few? And I really don't believe that's the heart or the design of God. Undoubtedly, that could be the reason perhaps for quite a bit of the weakness we see in the modern church today. And some of the anemia that's experienced is that we fail to faithfully adhere to the importance of coming together to prayer. And I don't doubt that the devil is not tactically just suddenly working in that way because he's not dumb. He's pretty theologically sound. He knows what has impact and what doesn't. And when we neglect to assemble to pray, we miss one of the main purposes we exist because Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That's what Jesus said. And he said, when two or three gather together in my name, I'm in the midst and what they ask will be given to them, that there's something powerful that happens. You know, searching question we should ask ourselves today as the church, why is it that we oftentimes will make time to participate in so many other things, but somehow we can't seem to see the value of making time to pray when there's an opportunity to do that? Searching thing, I think we should evaluate all of our lives in regards to. So these four things were kind of marks. They characterized the early church and its health. And I think we should seek to model and emulate as a New Testament church today as well. So we see the activities of the early church. The verses going on kind of tell us then the atmosphere. As they gave themselves to the teaching of the word of God, spiritual care and fellowship, partaking of the Lord's table, remembering Jesus, praying together consistently, this created the atmosphere we now go on to read about in verse 43. The atmosphere, then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So notice, one thing we see about the atmosphere of the early church is that it was an atmosphere of purity. It was an atmosphere of purity. It says fear came upon every soul. The word fear means reverential awe. That is because they were giving themselves to the things they were, the word of God, prayer, communion. As the result of those things, they were encountering God and everyone was developing a very healthy fear of God. There was a sense of the presence of God in their midst. There was a sense of needing to maintain standards of purity and holiness because there was a sense the Lord is in our midst. 
And they sensed in their meetings, the Lord is among us. And so each one felt compelled with a reverential fear of God to make sure that God was honored and pleased in their midst. And they were reverencing, wanting to have his approval as a top priority. And again, a healthy church should have a strong reverence for the presence of the Lord. Not beginning to just make concessions and allowing lower moral standards, but a reverence. The Lord is among us. When we assemble, it's not just for a little religious gathering. We're assembling and we're meeting with Jesus. And the Spirit of God is in our midst. And there was this awe that came over them. So it was an atmosphere of purity. And also from verse 43, we also see it was clearly an atmosphere of power. Because verse 43 says that many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. That is, as they were, as God's people, maintaining God's priorities, they were experiencing God's power among them. And when you read through the book of Acts, we see supernatural signs and wonders happening through the Lord's servants. It seems as if the Spirit of God was not being grieved or quenched. He had the freedom to work. And it was as if Jesus was still alive doing the same things he did during his public ministry, and now he's just doing it through his servants. Through the body of Christ, we see people that were lame start walking, sick are being healed, demons are being cast out, and the ministry of God's Spirit and the Spirit of Christ was powerfully moving among the early church. Lives are being changed and transformed. The presence of the Lord was strong. And look, I I see that, and I think to myself, Lord, I truly believe in my heart that's what it's supposed to be. And I'm not necessarily saying that means we should be seeing physical miracles on occasion. Look, always remember when you study the book of Acts, that's a 30-year time period. If you go through the book of Acts and you count up the number of miracles and you average it over a 30-year history of what we have in the book of Acts, that's about one miracle or healing a year. A lot of times people read the book of Acts and go, why aren't we seeing more healings? We need to have healing services. Do you know what the biggest miracle is in the book of Acts? people's lives were being transformed and transformed and transformed and people were getting saved and they were taking their old garbage they were doing and their books and their magic and their filth and they were throwing it in the fire and repenting saying we need to live for Jesus and we need to tell the world about Jesus. Those were the miracles. Those were the major miracles as the power of the Lord was very strong in their midst and I truly believe the church should be a place of power where lives are being changed and people are being healed and transformed. Verse 44 says also that all who believed were together and had all things in common. There's our word koinonia there again in the Greek. And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among them all as anyone had need. So notice also, you see the atmosphere of the early church wasn't just purity and power, but there also was unity among them. And there was a real giving and a real sharing in that atmosphere. Here's where we see that word we talked about earlier, fellowship, koinonia. There it is illustrated right there in verse 44 and 45. God says, let me show you what that koinonia looks like. And you can see what's happening. People were actually not just sharing their lives. They were literally sharing their stuff. They were literally just saying, look, we don't want to have what we need if you don't have what you need. And and there was such a love in the midst of them and keep in mind 3,000 people from all different countries just got saved and they're all hanging around Jerusalem there was this pressing need all of a sudden how do we substantiate everybody nobody wanted to go home (laughs) they all wanted to hang out in Jerusalem hey we're family now let's just worship Jesus and live for the Lord and so all of a sudden they got a problem but how do we take care of 3,000 people 
And there was such a love among them. People were literally, it says, selling their goods and their property. Hey, I don't need this really, so let me sell this so we can help take care of you. And again, there was just this, and it only lasted temporarily. We'll see as we go on to the book of Acts. But there was just this compulsion to just care for one another and to share what they had with each other. Nobody wanted to be faring comfortably if somebody else was struggling. They couldn't, they couldn't settle with that in their conscience. Hey, if we're doing okay and they're struggling, we need to help them out. And there was just this incredible family love and this willingness to share each other's lives in this beautiful way demonstrated. This to me is love manifested. Very practical. Remember what Jesus said? He said, they'll know you're my disciples by your love one for another. And that's what you see demonstrated here. They're selling their possessions, giving it, it seems, to kind of those who had stewardship and they were dispersing to anybody who had needs, just caring for one another in this unity of the way they live, sharing and giving with one another. Verse 46 says, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple, And notice also breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. So we see some other byproducts again of this atmosphere of the early church. One of them I think that's evidenced here in verses 46 and 47 is there was an atmosphere of priority. And what I mean by that is spiritual priority. Because do you notice the way the Holy Spirit writes that out for us? Verse 46, I have it circled in my Bible. It says, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Continuing daily. In other words, the Christian faith for them was not a, or it was a day-to-day reality and not a weekly routine. To these early believers, Christianity was not a weekly routine that we go visit God once a week and say hi to all his people and then we do what we want the rest of the week. It wasn't a weekly, it was a day-to-day reality. They lived out their faith on a daily basis. These believers met together, apparently, what the Bible says, with a considerable amount of frequency. It says continuing daily in the temple, that would be large worship meetings, similar to how we're doing now, collectively in the temple of God. They were gathering for worship meetings and then also beautifully from house to house. That is just smaller meetings, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, having meals together and you know small groups of fellowship and times when they would just assemble together for maybe a Bible study or a prayer meeting. Their relationship with Jesus and his people was number one on their agenda. So much so that we see here in the word of God, they found time not just to get together Sunday and not even just Sunday and Wednesday. It actually says daily. It it really says that right there in the Bible. I think the implication that God wants us to see is that church life with God's family was their life. Church life with God's family, that was their life. In other words, these early believers built their life around their relationship with Christ and, and God's people. It wasn't the other way around. It wasn't that they built their life and did all their things and were engaged in all their activities and doing all the things that they had to do. And then when they had extra time where it was convenient or it did work out where they could get together with God's people, then they try and get together with God's people. It was the exact opposite. They built their life all about Jesus. 
It was all about worshiping Jesus and being with God's people and being a part of what God was doing. And then the rest of their life was built around that on a secondary level. And I think this is very insightful and important, challenging for our hearts because why today really should the church honestly be different? And it's hard for us in America because we have so much stuff, it seems, certainly in our country, that just distracts us in our spiritual priorities. And so often, if we were to be honest as American Christians, we can give so many shallow excuses why amazingly we are so engaged in so many things and involved in so much Almost to the point where, you know, the, the, the excuses we give, well, I have to do this or that, or what, you know, like, well, Monday the kids have this, and then Tuesday they have that, and Thursday they swim, and Friday they do that, and, and, and we have all these things that somehow we find so much reason to be so dead. And look, I'm just, we're, just, we're just too busy. Right. Maybe you're too busy doing the wrong things. <laughs> And look, I'm not, my daughter twirled baton and did all kinds of stuff. I'm not, you know, poo-pooing. I hope you can say that from the pulpit. I did now anyway. I'm not, you know, knocking, being able to live life and have fun and do things. What I'm saying is, should we not have the heart that Jesus asks us to have, Matthew 6.33, where we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? then all these other things in life begin to be added to us. Look, I know we need to work and be responsible and pay our bills and nothing wrong with enjoying life and having some fun or whatever. But too often, if we were honest, it's amazing the dedication and sacrifices we make to be engaged and committed to all these other things and you know involved in so much and how much we give ourselves to our careers or pursuit of careers and all these other things. And then we kind of just give the Lord the leftovers. We kind of give the things of the Lord or gathering with God's people or doing God's work. That kind of just gets the leftovers in our life. And I can't help but to wonder when I read the book of Acts and, and I sense perhaps what the heart of the Lord really is, that if we don't sometimes get it backwards, if instead we should build our life around Jesus and the family of God and being a part of what the Lord's doing and then say, and then Lord, whatever time I have left that it's convenient to do A, B, and C and what's a part of just normal life in this temporal world, that kind of stuff will come secondary. And I, and I do just genuinely wonder sometimes as a Christian like you and even as a pastor as well, you know, sometimes we see, you know, our, our lives were burnt out and our you know, families are struggling and things are falling apart and marriages and so forth. And I just can't help but to wonder sometimes if perhaps if we reprioritize spiritually and we truly sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, if in an amazing way things might start to change in our Christian dynamic, among the body of Christ, in our spiritual lives. I'm just telling you, when you begin to act upon and absorb that truth, that it's Jesus first and everything else second, that really begins to revolutionize your spiritual life. It has a powerful impact on your family lifestyle and family dynamic. And I love to see here, they're gathering together, it says, in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. It says, verse 46, well, they ate their food with gladness. So notice, the early church, it was an atmosphere of joyful people. They weren't bitter and unhappy and miserable. There wasn't division and gossip and people treating each other selfishly and cruelly. It says there was a gladness. In other words, they were, they were a group of people who were cheerful and hopeful. They loved the Lord. They loved being together. It says 
that they were assembling together and there was a simplicity of heart. The idea is things were just simple among them. It was just simple. It wasn't complex. There was just a genuine sincerity. It says as well in the text there, verse 47, that they were just praising God and having favor with all the people. That is, these believers were excited about the Lord. They enjoyed praising God. They just loved worship. I like that. They were just, this was a part of their simplicity. Hey, we just love worship. We love to get together and just praise God. And we love just to worship. It was just something they found such great enjoyment in. And I love as well that the Bible records in verse 47, it says they had favor with all the people. And there it seems to imply outside of the realm of the church or the, the body of Christ. That is that the church, you might say Christians, were having favor in their community. That because they were who they were, the community was blessed because of the church. That the church was having favor with the community around them. And people were like, hey, we're glad that church is in our community. Because the impact they have on our schools and our neighborhoods and, and the influence, man, they, they bring great favor to our community. And of course, the ending of verse 47, here we see the addition to the church. It says, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So note, as their devotion to the spiritual activities were what they were, teaching the word of God, prayer, spiritual care and concern for one another as they gave themselves to those things it resulted in a healthy spiritual atmosphere which resulted in healthy sheep reproducing and really that's what you see happening here the spirit of the lord was continually drawing people out of sin and into salvation it says the lord added to the church daily those who were being saved it's often been said before that when the church becomes all that God intends for the church to be, then God has the full freedom to do for the church what he really wants to do, which is to add souls to his kingdom. And notice as well, verse 47, it says, the Lord added those who were being saved. It was a work of the Lord. It was the Lord himself adding souls, bringing growth, bringing increase. Honestly, I don't really see anywhere in the Bible where the implication is, is that somehow we're to figure out how to bring growth and increase to a church or a congregation. What I see is that Jesus adds as he wants to bring increase. That as we do what Jesus wants us to do and seek to be healthy as a people, that it's his role as a work of his grace, not by human effort or accomplishment, that it's his role to just add to his church as he sees fit to do that. Amazing. This early church knew nothing of membership drives. They knew nothing about marketing techniques or seminars or books or strategies or research for what a people like. What would they prefer for the meeting? What would bring them in and keep them coming back? They knew nothing of that. What they knew was how to love Jesus and worship him and study the word of God and care for one another like a spiritual family. And the amazing thing, that healthy influence of those Christians was something that made them very usable for Christ. And they were multiplying. Again, sheep produce sheep. Churches don't produce sheep. Sheep reproduce and bring about more sheep and as sheep are healthy they're then able to do that i love what jesus said in matthew 16 remember he said i will build my church it's the lord's role to do that and the wonderful thing is this this is where the peace comes from is if jesus builds or jesus adds 
then it's genuine growth. Because it's not the recruiting of more spiritual or social customers, it's the producing of genuine spiritual converts that Jesus drew in and that Jesus will continue to build. Our job is to maintain the health of his church and be useful vessels and to seek and ask that the Lord would do his job, which is to reach souls and help people grow in their relationship with Christ. So why don't we stand together?